Well, praise God. Amen. 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 Yes, we love the congregational worship, the singing, God's children all singing praises to his holy name in worship of what he's done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's continue our worship now as we turn to Acts 23. We're going to be in Acts 27, but the scripture reading is going to be in 23. First, I got to ask Noel, which Olive Garden was it that Mina, I mean, Wadsworth? Okay, don't go to lunch at the Olive Garden on Wadsworth. All right, we're going to look at verses 9 through 11. This is when Paul was before the Sanhedrin, you can remember. And then again, we'll, we'll go to Acts 27. But Acts 23, 9 through 11, if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is God's word. There occurred a great outcry. Some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up, began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And a great dissension was developing because the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down, take him away from there, and bring him into the barracks. But on that very night, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly borne witness to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must bear witness at Rome also. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to come together to sing praises to your holy name. You are worthy. You are holy. You are holy, 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 and worthy of all our praise and adoration this morning. It's a delight to come together and to open up your word. We pray that you would change our hearts through this text and be glorified in this time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Take courage, Paul. You must bear witness at Rome. An encouragement, a consolation, a declaration, a promise from Christ himself. Paul, I know it hasn't been easy coming back to Jerusalem and all, but you must go to Rome. You will go to Rome. Almost three years later, after multiple trials, multiple governors, one king, and an appeal to the emperor, Paul is on his way to Rome. Acts 27 and the first part of Acts 28 are really a long travel log. And uh, let's just say it's not smooth sailing for the Apostle Paul. Our chapter this morning has all the makings of an action-adventure film, 44 verses of danger, drama, trials, and tribulation, yet trust, triumph, and divine preservation. It's a truly exhilarating section of Scripture. However, It's one that I'll admit caused me a bit of concern in the initial phases of my preparation. Though I'm familiar with this text, uh, this book as a whole, I'll typically begin to prepare for the following week's text on Sunday evening, maybe even Monday morning, uh, to see what we'll be diving into next. But when I started to look at Acts 27 last Sunday, I started to sweat a little bit. First, asking who in their right mind would assign all 44 verses here to be covered in one 50-minute sermon? What kind of imbecile would do such a thing? (laughs) Then I remembered, it was me. So I got over that one pretty quickly. Then I started reading deeper into the text, 
And again, even though I've read it multiple times before, who knows how many times before, now that I'm preparing for it, things are starting to jump out a bit more. Now I'm reading of pilots and captains and weighed anchors and bows and cargo being jettisoned in the face of gale force winds. I'm reading about tackle and fathoms and foresails. And I thought, oh my word, I'm getting seasick just reading this. And I don't know what any of it means. Full disclosure, five days ago, I couldn't tell you what the front, back, top, or bottom of any ship was called, let alone one from 2,000 years ago. The last time I was out on the open sea, it was during a fishing trip where I spent all six hours balled up in the fetal position in the cabin. (laughs) So here I am reading this account. I had to take Dramamine by the 26th verse. All that to say, this is a very unique chapter in the book of Acts, okay? Really unlike any other chapter in this whole testimony, or even in, in Luke's gospel, really. However, as I continued to study it, I discovered some amazing truths within, and I believe we're all going to walk away from here amazed at this text, at both the accuracy of Dr. Luke with regard to his account of the events that unfolded, but also the clear working of God's sovereign, providential hand as he fulfills his words to Paul, you must get to Rome. So let's dive in here. You want to have your Bibles open to Acts 27, follow along here. We'll take a section at a time. I'll make brief comments throughout, then we'll get into some quick takeaways and principles for our lives here today, okay? Verse 1, Luke writes, Now, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. First thing we see is we, meaning who's back in the mix? Luke, that's right. He's on the ship. He's probably been uh, up in Caesarea quite a bit over these past few years, and here he is now with Paul and another familiar name from his time in Ephesus. Verse 2, and getting aboard an Adramidian ship, which was about to set sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we set sail accompanied by Aristarchus, the Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day day we put in at Sidon, And Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. So, this centurion, this Roman official who was usually over 100 men, was now in charge of the ship that our three guys just boarded here. If you notice on the back of your outlines, you'll find a colored map. Uh, This will be good to put on the opposite page of your Bible. Follow along so you can see where we are on the journey. At this point... We go from Caesarea to Sidon in a short sail up the coast there, the Mediterranean coast. Right away, we see that the prisoner Paul has some freedoms. Julius lets him go into town to visit some of the brethren to receive care. Paul probably has a soldier's escort here, but in the grand scheme of things, what this demonstrates is that he had favor with the Roman officials. He had gained the trust of his captors. Maybe they said, ah, Let him go into town. We know he's not going to run out on us. That's not like Paul here. We heard about him up in Philippi when there was that earthquake, when the jail doors burst open and he stopped the jailer from committing suicide. When he said, don't do it, don't do it, we're all here. We're not going to go anywhere, don't kill yourself. I don't know if they heard that or not, but Paul's reputation certainly preceded him with these guys. Uh, Anyhow, the ship stops at Sidon where Paul and Luke go to see some of their buddies. They get some care, then they get back on the ship in verse 4. 
From there, we set sail uh, and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed through the sea long, uh, along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra and Lycia. So again, on your map, we can see that they hugged the island of Cyprus. They used the land as a barrier to cut down on some of the wind before sailing up to Lycia. Verse 6. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship setting sail for Italy, and he put us aboard it. So they switch ships here. They have a new ship. Typically, when you wanted to travel by sea in those days, you'd wait on the docks and in the harbors for a ship to come by who was going to your destination, then you'd hitch a ride. But here we're not talking about some guy looking to hitch a ride here, but we're, we're talking about 276 men, as we'll see here in a little bit. So it had to be a bit, pretty big ship, which it was. In fact, I'm not kidding here. Uh, I did the measurements a few days ago. Based on the calculations of many modern historians and Bible scholars, this ship would have been almost exactly the same size as this building. Yes, Chris. We often say God has provided us with the perfect meeting place here in Lakewood, a little shoebox of a building whose measurements mimic that of Noah's Ark. It's absolutely sufficient to meet all of our needs. We say that tongue-in-cheek, of course, but in reality, Noah's Ark was three times as long, one and a half times as wide, but this ship, this Alexandrian ship they hopped on at Myra, again, many historians would say had almost the exact dimensions of this building. So, as we keep on reading here, I want you to picture 276 of us in this building all crammed together without a shower or private restroom in sight. Can you imagine the smell? Okay. Well, think about that as the text goes on. This was a grain ship. This was not a passenger ship here. It was It carried wheat, it carried other goods, mainly from Egypt, and was no doubt insured by Rome, but now it's about to set sail with almost 300 men on board. Let's see how she holds up here. In verse 7, we start to see things get a little bit testy. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days, and with difficulty had arrived at Sinaitis, since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone with difficulty, and we sailed past it and came to a place called Fair Havens. This is right in the middle of that island, Crete there, near which was the city of Lycia. So here they are in the place called Fair Havens. Now, it's obviously not all that fair considering what happens in verse 9. He says, when considerable time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous since even the fast was already over. That's the fast of Uh, the Day of Atonement, which was in the fall of each year, around late September, early October, an awful time for sea travel. But when considerable time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous, Paul began to advise them. And he said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was being more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to set sail from there if somehow they could arrive at Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest, to spend the winter there. Paul says, listen, I don't have a good feeling about this. I know a thing or two about shipwrecks. 
Okay, I told the church in Corinth, I've been in three of them. Three times he says I was beaten with rods. Now once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. All that to say, I don't have the best track record when it comes to sailing the seven seas here. You may want to stick around fair havens for a while. It's not so bad here, right? That's what he's saying. But ultimately, the centurion who had the final say on this ship as it carried much needed goods to Rome went with the pilot and the captain. The captain was the owner of the ship. So he may have looked at Julius and said, nah, we'll be all right. We can make it. We can make it. So Paul gives this recommendation. He gives advice, his opinion. This is not prophecy here yet, but his opinion And Julius makes the determination. He says, now let's push this thing. We got this, okay? Famous last words. Verse 13. When a moderate south wind came up, thinking that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor, began sailing along the shore of Crete. That verse means a little bit of wind came up from behind, started pushing them in in the direction of their destination here, and they, they looked around and said, hmm, see... I knew we'd make it. So they pulled up the anchors and they set sail right past the last safe harbor in Phoenix. Just then, things start to go really, really badly. Okay, verse 14. I want you to notice the sheer desperation in this section. Before long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Uroquillo. And when the ship was caught in it, and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be carried along. Running along the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. That's boat there is an auxiliary boat that they towed behind them. They used under normal conditions if the travelers needed to go back and forth from the ship to land, ship to land. Luke says they began to uh, lose control of even that vessel, so it's flapping around behind them. It was not a good situation. But, verse 17, after they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship. Fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Syrtis, they let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be carried along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. On the third day, they cast the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Okay, it turns out we made the wrong call. This was a bad call. They got the little boat hoisted up, but the main ship, it's still way out of control. They know they could still be driven by the unpredictable wind into shallow water, so they break out these huge cables. They toss them overboard. They drag them under the boat. They pull them up. Uh, up the other side here, just to keep the timbers of the boat together, the hull together. They were preserving the hull from being burst into pieces by the waves or the wind. They gird it. And in an act of pure desperation, they then start taking all the tackle, all the extra sails and the nets, the chains, pretty much everything but some anchors and some wheat went over as they had to lighten the ship. They had to get the ship to go up a little bit. Not only that, but the storm is so bad... They can't even see the sun. Dark gray skies during the day, pitch black at night. They didn't have compasses in this place and time, so they were just 
letting themselves be carried along. They were at the mercy of this tumultuous sea. Luke says they had abandoned all hope of being rescued. They were essentially being tossed to and fro in the middle of the Mediterranean on a death ship. Again, I say, picture yourself on this ship, violently thrown around nonstop with no destination in sight. You don't know if you're going to hit land. You don't know if the ship's going to break apart. You don't know which one of these waves is going to be the one that does you in. Add to this that people hated the sea back then. It wasn't like going on a carnival cruise. The, the sea was full of superstition. It, Homer's odyssey filled their minds, and even the thought of going out on the waters at night struck fear and terror into the hearts of even the strongest men. You remember the disciples? Remember some very experienced fishermen? You had Peter and those guys. There's a violent storm one night. Peter comes walking to him on the water. Mark says they thought it was a ghost and started crying out. Devout Jews, Christ followers, they say, this is a ghost, and they start crying The sea, in their minds, was a cursed place. Now here they are throwing stuff off the ship. They can't see anything. They don't know where they are. It's a terrifying situation here. And there sits Paul. Look at his reaction in verse 21. One of the biggest I told you so's ever. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men... You ought to have followed my advice to not set sail from Crete and avoid this damage and loss. Now, I don't know if he was talking to all the guys on the ship or just the captain, pilot, centurion, and his soldiers, but I do know it had to be extremely satisfying. There's no time for gloating here. No time for reveling in the moment. No time for to sit around with his arms folded, demanding an apology or an admission of his being superior to everyone on that boat and all things nautical. He didn't have the time. Instead, he said, okay, everybody, listen up. And I know you will this time. I advise you, in verse 22, to be cheerful. Cheerful? Cheerful? Are you kidding me? How could we possibly be cheerful? We're doomed. We don't even know where we are. All of our gear is out in sea. We haven't eaten anything. How are you going to come in here and say, be cheerful to us right now? Well, he says, There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now, unlike before, this isn't just his opinion, okay? This isn't just some nice advice that he's given, but rather, this is a promise. A divine promise as sure as you are going to Rome. Oh yeah, he says in verse 23, For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, be cheerful, men, for I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground to some island. Oh, those sweet, sweet words an angel of the God to whom I belong, to whom I serve. Now, I'm not a man who writes in my Bibles, but I'll confess, even I'm tempted to underline that phrase here. The God to whom I belong and to whom I serve. That's a great statement. More on that in a moment. For now, he says, listen, God says this ship's as good as gone. 
but you'll all live. Just do what I tell you. We have to find land somehow. And that's exactly what happens. Two weeks later, but on the fort, when the 14th night came, as we were being carried about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to suspect that land was approaching them. When they took soundings, they found it to be 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took another sounding, found it to be 15 fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and were praying for daybreak. Okay, so land ho! Well, how'd they know that? Well, they suspected they were nearing land. They sensed it. Again, no compass, no daylight. They may have heard waves crashing on the land. They may have smelled the land. Whatever the case, they sensed that they were approaching land. They confirmed this by letting down measuring devices, okay? We'll drop down a rope a rope with a little weight on the end of it, and it'll go down. We'll see how far it goes down. When the weight hits the ocean floor, then we'll know how far away from land we are. So the first thing they did, they dropped this down, and they said it was uh, 20 fathoms. A fathom is six feet, so 120 feet down. Then they go a little bit further. They did it a little later. Now it's 15 fathoms. Okay, oh, man. okay men, showtime here. We're at 90 feet. The seafloor is rising. Land is coming. Now all of a sudden, guys start to get a bit, a, bit, a bit excited here. Luke says in verse 30, the sailors were trying to escape from the ship. They had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow. Uh, a group of these guys, who knows if they're going to take off afterwards or not, but maybe they said, you know, forget these prisoners. We're free. We're getting off this thing. Let's get in that little boat here and get out of here, save ourselves. But remember, Paul the prisoner had now become Paul the captain. And he said to the centurion in verse 31, Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat, let it fall away. Paul says, God made it clear. We're all in this together. The ship is toast, but we have to believe in God's promise here. The centurion looks at his guys, gives a nod, they cut the ropes, they watch that little ship go away into the stormy seas. Just then, the sun starts to come up in verse 33. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them to all take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you've been constantly watching and going, going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your salvation. Not a hair of, from your head, excuse me, not a, uh, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said all these things, he took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of all. And he broke it, began to eat it. All of them became cheerful, and they themselves also had taken food. And all of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. So Paul right here initially, uh, essentially says, okay, boys, it's time to put your floaties on. Okay, probably didn't say that, but he did say, you're going to need your strength when we hit land, so eat some of this wheat. Important to note, this is not the Lord's Supper. Uh, that's the meal for believers. But notice, Paul didn't hesitate for a second to give credit where credit is due in the presence of all men as he gave thanks to the God of all creation. They all ate, 
And then what surely must have been done, the Adriatic wheat party, they began tossing Rome's precious cargo into the sea, lightening it even more. You didn't like my Adriatic wheat party, Joe? All right. Is that coffee percolating over there? Okay. Then shipwreck number four for the Apostle Paul. Okay, verse 39. Now, when day came, they could not recognize the land, but they were noticing a bay with a beach. They were resolving to drive uh, the ship onto it if they could. Casting off their anchors, they left them in the sea while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach, but striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground and the bow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. Again, in sheer desperation, they cut away the remaining anchors, the last ditch attempt to lighten the ship and get it as high as possible before they hit land. But they don't even make it to the beaches of Malta without getting stuck on this reef or sandbed or smaller island before the island. The boat gets stuck, proceeds to be hammered by the wind and the waves and completely destroyed in the process. Now, We've seen a couple times here in Acts. But you got all these prisoners on the ship, right? And then you have the Roman soldiers. What happens to Roman soldiers whose prisoners escape on their watch? That's right, death. They get the death penalty. They get killed themselves. So in verse 42, Luke says, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would uh, swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and ordered that those who could swim should jump overboard first, get to land, and the rest should follow, some on planks, others on various things from the ship. He says, hold up, guys. Did you forget what Paul said? We're all going together. Any of you guys know how to swim? Then get to the beach. Whoever doesn't know how to swim, grab onto whatever you can find and propel yourselves over there. In other words, grab your floaties. Look what Luke says as he closes this account. So it happened that they were all brought safely to land when they had been brought safely to the shore. Then we learned that the island was called Malta. They were all brought safely to land, just as the angel of the Lord said they would be. Oh, that's a pretty uh, amazing 44 verses, right? Is that amazing? We did it. We made some pretty good time ourselves. What's even more amazing, though, is when you hear what contemporary historians and scholars say about the accuracy given by Dr. Luke. Speaking of the chaotic scene, one said, quote, God was in control. He, he always is. The storm didn't take him by surprise. He was not in heaven in a panic, summoning his angels to come up with a rescue plan for Paul. God caused that boat to drift 476 miles from Fair Havens to Malta, another speck in that vast sea. Although the sailors were not in control, God was. And that's right. In the 19th century, uh, experienced Scottish yachtsman James Smith made a careful on-site study study of this narrative. 
He asked experienced Mediterranean navigators what the mean drift of a ship of this kind would be in such a wind. He learned that it would drift about 36 miles in 24 hours. Even today, the soundings mentioned in Acts 27:28 indicate that the ship was passing Cora, a point on the east coast of Malta, on her way into what would, known, what would be known as St. Paul's Bay. Listen to this. Smith calculated that a ship leaving in the evening from Crete in the evening from Crete would by midnight of the 14th day be less than 3 miles from the entrance of Malta. He said, quote, "I admit that a coincidence so very close as this is to a certain extent accidental, but it is an accident which could not have happened had there been any inaccuracy on the part of the author." of the narrative with regard to the numerous incidents upon which the calculations are founded? Or had the ship been wrecked anywhere but at Malta? For there's no other place agreeing either in name or description within the limits to which we are tied down by calculations founded upon the narrative. That's pretty incredible. This shows that 1,900 years later, uh, both the perfect accuracy of Luke's narrative while also solidifying our assurance that we can fully trust in the word of God. When the things of our lives seem to be out of control, we have to remember they are never out of God's control. Here's why this is important. You can be certain that that what you hold in your hand or what sits on your lap right now are the very inspired words of God. Which means you can bank the eternal destination of your everlasting souls on the promises of this book, in this book, as he's the one who spoke them into existence as well. It's a guarantee. You can trust what he says in this book to be the rudder of your soul, okay? Your conduct, your salvation, and you too can have eternal peace that surpasses all understanding as you come up against very challenging seasons in your earthly life, okay? Now, having said all that, let's not be ignorant of the temptation to wrongly apply this text to our lives and say, oh, we will be in storms, but if we just have enough faith, God will take them away and spare us from danger, or... Oh, if we just respond in obedience, God will still the waters of our lives and the rest of our days on this life will be smooth sailing. Says who? That may be the charismatic interpretation of this text. Uh, Just have enough faith and you will be healed. The more faith you have, the more healing you will get. No faith? No healing. Sorry about that. Just trust him and he will prosper you. He will be with you. He will keep you. He will protect you if you do this, this, and this for my ministry. Just become a a true Christian and receive the special anointing of the Holy Spirit. He will never let anything bad happen to you. What about Paul, though? Is that what he would say? Is that what Paul would say? He's maybe the most faithful Christian that has ever lived, and yet this was his fourth shipwreck since coming to Christ. He was just in an accessory in jail cell for two years based on false accusations and crooked Roman-Jewish relations. He experienced far more labors, in far more imprisonments, in beatings without number. He couldn't even count how many times he got beaten up. 
in frequent danger of death. Five times he received from the Jews 40 lashes, less one, five times. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times, now four, he was shipwrecked. A night and a day he had spent in the deep. He said, I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the cities, dangers in desolate places, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brothers, which could be the worst. I have been in labor and hardship, in many sleepless nights and starvation and thirst, often hungry and cold and without enough clothing. Apart from all such external things, there's this daily pressure of me, uh, on me of concern for all the churches. Where's the health, wealth, and prosperity? That doesn't sound like smooth sailing to me. You know why we don't hear about health, wealth, and prosperity of the Apostle Paul and the early Christians? Because that's not what the Bible teaches about those who come to faith in Christ. Actually, we're only promised the exact opposite. We will have trials, big ones. Before and after coming to Christ, we will get that diagnosis. We will lose that job. We will have those conflicts. We will experience deep hurt, painful loss. We will have those late night phone calls about our kids and our grandkids. We will have people who hate us, slander us, exclude us, insult us, scorn our name as evil for his name's sake. And should the Lord tarry, we're all going to die at some point. Maybe under some horrific circumstances. Maybe not, though. I just hope it's not on some boat. But we will have tribulations, affliction, battles, losses, major trials. And I'm here to tell you, God's word doesn't give us instruction for how to be rid of these trials on earth, but rather... He gives principles through men like Paul for how to respond when they inevitably come. Followed by the encouragement to look to the next life and get our eyes off this life for just a minute. The next life is when we prosper. That's when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. But here we got to grin and bear it. We got to grin and bear it. Paul had trials. He had many trials Peter, James, John, Luke, Aristarchus, Barnabas, Aquila, Priscilla, Timothy, Titus. All these believers had tremendous problems. Whole letters were written to persecuted believers who were being beaten, imprisoned, murdered. First and second Peter, Galatians, Romans, even Corinth. He wrote to Corinth and said, Look, you guys are all messed up. Okay, a lot of it you brought on yourselves. But here's how to respond to that conflict and those trials as you move forward with life on this corrupted and cursed earth. He said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I also am of Christ. And I think that's right on. While we weren't on that boat, we can certainly look at Paul's response to a very desperate situation and respond in kind, right? Right? We we may not have been visited by an angel guaranteeing that we'll stand before the president in D.C. to bear witness to the gospel of Christ. But if you're still here, living and breathing, he has you here for a purpose. To be a 
fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. Like the Corinthians, your chief end as a believer in this life is to bring glory to God. And then when he determines best, he will take you home. In the meantime, you will suffer. Let's have church today. You're going to suffer in this life. You will have many, many trials because it's a broken world. It's a cursed world. Do not love the world. But my encouragement to you would be be imitators of Paul and take the principles that we see, even here in Acts 27, to help you respond to your trials with as much confidence in the Lord as he had, right? I think the biggest principle that we can take away here is found in verse 23. Look how precious this is. Look, Look at it in your own Bibles. Don't take my word for it here. For this very night... An angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before, before me saying, do not be afraid, Paul. If you're a true Christian this morning and you're, you're here this morning as a true believer, a true born again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you belong to God. You are one of his. He owns you. He bought you with a price. He bought you out of the slave market of sin and death, out of this this evil world system, and he has transferred you already into the kingdom of the son of his love, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, you have no reason to be afraid, certainly not of death. The very moment you die, you will be with him forever and ever. Revelation 21 says, an eternity awaits us where He will dwell among us. We shall be his people, and God himself will be among us. You belong to him. He calls the church his bride. Men, you have a deep love for your bride, don't you? I hope so. Well, that's a human love, and it's wonderful. But don't forget that the love that God has for his bride is a perfect love. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself up for her. That's how much he loves us. He calls those who belong to him his children. You parents in here love your children, right? Yeah, well, that's human love, and it's a wonderful love. But don't forget the love that God has for his children is a perfect love. Jesus said, Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? He calls those who belong to him his sheep. He is the good shepherd. His sheep hear his voice. He said, if a man has a hundred sheep, one goes astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 which have not gone astray. That's human care. That's human protection. That's human rejoicing. And it's wonderful. But don't forget that the care and the protection 
of God for his sheep is a, is a perfect care, perfect protection, even if things get really, really rough in this life. Even if we should perish from this earth, we must remember that the good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. In this way, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish, and we don't, eternally speaking, because of the sacrifice of God for all who belong to him. My brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning and you believe in the gospel of the grace of God, then you can say along with Paul, I am his, I am his, I belong to the divine. He sealed me with his spirit, eternal life is mine. Can you say that this morning, honestly? Can you say that? Can you say with Paul, the God to whom I belong? You say, well, how do I know? Well, like Paul, you belong to him and you serve him. The God to whom I belong and serve. Even amidst life troubles, life's troubles, which are many, we love our Lord. We love his word. We love his people. We love his church. We now long to obey him, even when it's not necessarily pleasant or easy, because we're being transformed. We're being conformed as we're continually informed by his word and his spirit. We've trust that we've been justified by faith positionally, but we also know that we're being progressively sanctified by his grace. And now we begin to love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates. And we long to serve him faithfully as obedient slaves for his glory and his glory alone. Paul says, I belong to him and I serve him. Be imitators of me. And do so with thankfulness. This is the next principle. Think of Paul with all these guys around him, mostly pagans, heathen soldiers, prisoners, sailors. He takes this bread, he gives thanks to God, unashamedly so. He could have said with a mouthful of wheat, now don't forget when we get to that island, whose God brought you here? He's almost the anti-Jonah, right? Jonah grumbled, Jonah complained, he resisted, he was ungrateful, he was thrown overboard by a bunch of guys who ended up suffering because he tried to run away from God. Not Paul, though. The sailors on his ship were blessed by his presence, right? Through, through this demonstration of gratitude, Paul was saying, yeah, this is an awful situation here. This is not good, but the Lord is not awful. He knows what he's doing. It's his sea. He controls the winds and the waves. He knew that. Not only will I trust him in the storm, but I'll give thanks to him for sparing our lives when, frankly, we deserve far less, far worse, right? We deserve to be dead. We deserve to crash. I can't believe we're still alive. Can you say the same thing this morning? The fact that you're sitting here, that we're all sitting here, I'm standing here breathing, is a testimony to his amazing grace in itself but that you're hearing his word, his divinely inspired word and being encouraged by it? If that's not worthy of your gratitude, even in what may be a very challenging season in your life, then I'm not sure what is. Finally, I'll close with this. You just can't help but think about these guys' uh, reaction when Paul, uh, when they hit that shoreline. How did they respond to Paul? Who knows what they thought of this prisoner and his God after such clear preservation of every person on that ship. Luke says they were all, uh, brought sa- they all were brought safely to land. Then what? 
Did they just uh, walk off and forget about it? Did they chalk it up to good luck or good fortune? Did they make a sacrifice to Neptune or something like that? Or did this marvelous display of the promises of the true God coming to pass cause them to turn and cause them to give thanks as well? What happened? Did Paul share the gospel with them? Were some of them saved, not just temporally speaking, but eternally so? I wonder if, when they all got to shore, Paul looked into their eyes and said, I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, who came into this world to save sinners like you and you. And you, you you were separated from the holy God of Israel. Like all men, you were conceived and born in sin. You were all born under the just judgment of a holy and righteous God. You have willfully transgressed his holy law. And if you die in this condition, which you almost did right back there on that ship, you will face his eternal wrath and torment in a place called hell forever and ever with no opportunity of escaping. But God so loved the world not just Israel, but the whole world that he gave his only begotten son. The God that I just gave thanks to, he sent his son to this earth, which he spoke into existence to be born of a virgin, to be, be born under that same law, yet because he did not have an earthly father, like all of us, he himself was God, he never strayed from that that law, like all of us did. He was perfect. He was sinless. Yet it was the will of the father to crush his son and deliver him over to the chief priest who gave him over to the hands of lawless men from my people to your people. And they put him to death. They killed him by hanging him on a Roman cross until he breathed his last. The father placed his son upon that altar as a perfect substitute for sinners like us a perfect sacrifice to completely atone for the sin of all who would but believe in him and call upon his name alone for salvation. He was murdered. He was placed in an empty tomb where after three days he was then triumphantly raised from the dead, having conquered sin and death before appearing to many, many witnesses, some who are still alive this day, Paul could have said. He then ascended back up to the right hand of his father on high where he is now, even now, currently ruling and reigning in the hearts of those who belong to him through his spirit. He is currently ruling in the heart of all those who believe in this good news, all those whom he has chosen for salvation, all those who who he will indwell with his spirit and bring into everlasting life, all of those who hear his voice, and are brought from death to life, all of those who belong to him. Are you one of those, sailor? Do you hear his voice to say, today, sailor? Come to him. Behold, now is the appointed time. Are you one of those, soldier, centurion, Well, then come to him. Behold, today is the day of salvation. How about you, captain? How about you, all you prisoners? If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Come to him. Have eternal life. I don't know if he said that on this seashore. Luke doesn't say 
But I will say this very invitation is extended to you this morning. If you're not absolutely certain that you belong to him, I would implore you, I would beg you to place your hope and your trust in the only one worthy of placing your hope and trust in in this corrupted and cursed earth. That is the sovereign, living, eternal life-giving God of the heavens and the earth. I bid you come to him this morning. Come to him by his amazing grace alone, through faith alone in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone, and long for that day when he takes you to be with him. Amen? Amen. Let's have Noel and the music team come up and close us in musical worship. Our Heavenly Father, our our hearts rejoice at the truth that we belong to you. We don't want to belong to any other. We long to be your obedient children, your bride, your sheep, your slaves, your adopted sons and daughters. And we long for that day when we see our Heavenly Father face to face. We long for that day when we see our Lord Jesus Christ and just give you everlasting praise for what you've done for us, wretched, depraved men and women, yet saved, transformed by your grace. We can't wait to be with you in person and give you all the praise, all the glory forevermore. But now we do so and give you, give you thanks for the opportunity to do it. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.